And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We wish all of you listening a happy Valentine's Day. We have for you a conversation that could not be more applicable or appropriate for this day in which we think about those we love. The book at hand is called The Practice of Love. Break old patterns, rebuild trust, and create a connection that lasts. This is the work of a, of a gentleman by the name of Lair Torrent, uh, who is a uh, clinically trained uh, and licensed marriage and family therapist, uh, an author and columnist who speaks extensively all across the country uh, on, uh, on the topic of relationships. And uh, in this book, uh, he has really set out some very, very compelling thoughts on how relationships can be uh, made stronger, and in particular, how relationships that have uh, fallen into some kind of trouble or neglect or disrepair uh, can be rebuilt. And uh, I found a whole lot in this book uh, that uh, was thought-provoking in the best sense of the word. The book is published by Roman and Littlefield, again titled The Practice of Love, Break Old Patterns, Rebuild Trust, and Create a Connection That Lasts. Lair Torrent, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Greg, thanks for having me. I want to begin with a, a rather intensely personal question. I hope you don't mind. Uh, one of the things that you mention, it maybe is right at the outset of your biography, I don't, don't recall, maybe in the acknowledgments, somewhere in the book, you make mention of the fact that you were born to a 15-year-old mother living That's in correct. abject poverty. I just wonder if you could uh, speak for a moment about this beginning of your life mm. and what I would mm -hmm. assume was also, at least to some extent, maybe a, 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 a challenging childhood. I wonder what sort of lasting effects uh, that has had on you and, in a sense, to what extent the way your life began, the circumstances under which it began, has shaped you uh, as, as a therapist uh, in addition to, to, to other ways? Well, the way I, I, I describe it, I mean, look, it, it, is, it still affects me, um, probably not as negatively as it once did. Obviously, now uh, the narrative is sort of a more of a triumphant story. That's where I came from. The track was long, but here I am. Um, I was raised essentially by a house full of women because, you know, the men didn't stick around. And uh, that's not a new story, uh, but it's mine. And I think it uniquely wires me as a man to have been raised by a house full of really strong women um, to help not only men uh, because I'm a man, but also to help women and to understand at least a little bit. Uh, I've seen by the curtain, as it were, having been raised by those ladies. Um, the, the, the feminine experience as well. So the way it's affected me as a clinician is I can sort of stand on both sides of that aisle. Uh, often when people go into therapy, especially men, they'll like, you know, if I go into a couple's therapy and it's, it's a female therapist, sometimes they'll feel triangulated against. Um, women don't often love at first blush to, 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 to have a male therapist. That's, um, I'm painting with broad strokes for, for, uh, for time. But often that's the case. But the the energy that I hold is 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 one that uh, is inclusive of all of that experience. Now, 
the poverty piece, um, you know, that just makes me incredibly thankful for all, all I have and all that I've been able to create. But I said earlier that the men didn't stick around, and that meant that, you know, there weren't a lot of strong relationships that I saw. Um, my dad was young and, 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 you know, not particularly intelligent and emotionally and otherwise. He didn't stick around. And then my mother's next husband, he wasn't awesome either. She married a third time, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But across the board, not just her experience, my grandmother's experience, my, my aunt's experience um, with relationships, they weren't great. And I wanted to create, I wanted to create in my own life uh, this thing that I had never seen. And, of course, as I got older and began to go into to, to couples work, I recognized that, well, a lot of people are having trouble in that area. And there's a lot of good work to be done in that area. And so that became my life's work to help people uh, find this, this uh, holy grail uh, of, of, of relationship. I'm curious, as you began seriously pursuing this as your professional pathway, I wonder what kind of surprises there were uh, in terms of your maybe preconceived notions about what this kind of work would entail or what studying in order to be prepared for this work, what that would entail versus what, in fact, it turned out to be. I just wonder what, if any, surprises uh, struck you, particularly in the early going. Well, I think when you first start out, you you, you go into it, and people go into it for a variety of reasons. I wanted to know, and I figured at some point I would know most of what there is to know, right, that I would... You know, they would give me the Jedi robes at some point, and I would be this enlightened, wise being. Um, that doesn't necessarily happen if you're practicing well as a therapist. Uh, the, 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 the curiosity has to be ever-present from the beginning of your career uh, through the middle and to the end. If you don't, then you aren't changing. You aren't adapting. And so it was a surprise to me that, that you know, in my sort of uh, younger, um, naive mind that I wouldn't reach this echelon where I sort of just understand most things. Uh, I've come to a place where um, I've, I've gotten more comfortable with the unknown, knowing that I don't know everything. Um, that the moment a therapist thinks that they do, uh, that's, that's hubris and it can become dangerous. It's interesting that uh, very early in the book, it might be the very first words we read, you say this mm -hmm. to the reader, I do not offer this work from the faulty precipice of the grandiose healer or the artifice of mm -hmm. the fully analyzed therapist. Instead, I offer it as a fellow traveler working mm -hmm. and practicing, trying to do it a little better tomorrow than I did it today. So you are mm -hmm. approaching all of this, of course, from a point of humility. I kind of wondered, in terms of those words specifically, if you were talking about uh, being a fellow traveler uh, in terms of, of a therapist still learning his craft or also as a human being still working on the relationships in your own life, or maybe you mean a, a little bit of both. I was going to answer yes. <laughs> Again, yeah, yes, to all of that. That um, you, you you come out of that school. I went to two schools. I went to the Helix Training Program, which is a four-year, really difficult. Asks you essentially, it says if you can't work on your own stuff, then how can you help anyone work their stuff? 
I did that for four years. And then I went to another rigorous training program as a marriage and family therapist. Um, you come out of that, uh, you know, perhaps thinking you know a few things again. And um, I find that I just tend to do much better when I think I know everything. And that, that I, you know, find that, that humility. If you don't, the humility will find you. Um, and your wounding will walk through the door. A particularly challenging client will walk through the door. Um, the moment we had children, my wife and I, um, let me tell you, man, it was wipe the slate clean. You don't know anything. And this kid's going to show you just that. And so in, in my relationship, my ability to own my mistakes and my missteps and the fact that I have wounded pieces within me that get triggered and come up periodically. And I say and do things that, that perhaps I have to apologize for later. Learning that that's part of the process. We throw that word around a lot, process. Oh, I'm in process, or that was a process. That, that is the process, and I am in process, uh, still in process. The moment, and there was, for a while, uh, there was this notion of the fully analyzed therapist. And I, I think we've blown that up. Um, anyone who stands on that, uh, in that place, that is a faulty precipice. It, it will crumble underneath your feet. And I think the more we can recognize that we are fellow travelers, um, maybe I'm three or four books ahead of any one client. Um, teacher of mine said that. So just, you need to be three or four books ahead of the client. <laughs> um, and I thought that was, that was apt, right? And to know that, and then I sit with, I, I walk with my clients that way. And say, you know, I don't know any, everything, and you should not vault me in that way. Um, I might know a few more things because I've read a few different books, and perhaps I've had a few more experiences. Um, but I'm in this place of discovery with you, and I think clients tend to really like that. Hmm. We're speaking with Lair Torrent, and we're talking about his book, which is called The Practice of Love, Break Old Patterns, Rebuild Trust, and Create a Connection That Lasts. Um uh, before we take our way through kind of the main framework of, of your book, I'm actually jumping towards the end of the book to mention something that you talk about in, in, uh, in the last portion of the book, which is uh, focused on the, the tenet of, of personal responsibility. Um, it's, it's where you talk about how far too many couples come to you and probably to other uh, marriage therapists or counselors for what you call drive-through therapy. <laughs> yeah. And I really find that intriguing. And I think just from the name, I think a lot of us can kind of uh, understand probably where you're coming from. Describe a little more uh, this attitude that some people probably have when they come to you of, of, of looking for drive-through therapy and why that is such a problem and why you hope that they would seek out a, a sort of different kind of therapy than drive-through therapy? Well, drive-through therapy refers to, and there's a, uh, a specific couple in that I'm, I take the reader along um, the, the, the journey with, and they were continually coming in and uh, just sort of patching the hole in the hole. And so they would have a, a fight, and they would try to, you know, oh, we have communication issues. It's top of the mind, very surfacey. Uh, symptomatic piece. And so they would try and fix that. So we're going to uh, try and fix that communication problem, or we're going to try and, 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 and fix the physical connection that we have, or we're going to spend more time together. And so you get people who will touch in, they know they have a problem. 
Um, and perhaps somewhere inside they know that the issue runs deeper than just communication or just physical connection or just trying to spend more time together or any of those top-of-the-mind uh, issues that you will see that top the list of those you know, top 10 reasons couples seek therapy or get divorced or are unhappy. They'll come in and they'll fix that. So I'll give them some tools to work on that, and they'll feel a little bit better in the session or after a couple of sessions, and then they'll go away. And then when the you know wheels go into the ditch again, so to speak, they'll come running back. And at some point, I have to say to them, look, guys, this runs a little bit deeper. There is a wounded kid in both of you that is coming to the surface in your relationship. And it's the, the piece you're coming to me with, that that's a symptom. It's like wiping your nose when you have a cold, right? There is a cold virus within you that you're not getting to. And, and that's, that's really what drive-by therapy is. It's people coming in, they want me to wipe their nose for them and tell them it's going to be okay, and then they go away because perhaps they're afraid. Often that's it. They, they might know that there is a deeper issue at hand, but they don't want to touch it because if I open up that Pandora's box, what will we do then? Hmm. Your book begins with what's really kind of a harrowing account of a tremendously difficult session uh, between a husband and wife, Molly and mm-hmm. Bill. And mm-hmm. they seem caught in something that is really awful and also what feels like kind of an inescapable morass. I mean, you kind of mm-hmm. listen to this exchange between the two of them and you wonder how in the world can these two people find their way back to to mm-hmm. something more more positive. Um, d- describe this encounter to our listeners and tell us why you wanted to begin the book uh, in such a difficult place. Well, it's it, 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 this couple uh, found themselves again in this place. It was the same argument, essentially, over and over again. They had built this life. They had these kids, and um, they had sort of fallen into their roles, and they were they were uh, experiencing some typical and atypical stress of him traveling and, um, uh, you know, just losing connection and their, their, their inability to really talk uh, about what it is they were truly feeling and take responsibility for, for the things they, feelings that they had created in the other. The reason I chose that is because, you know, for me, I thought to myself, this actually when you said it's, it's a really difficult thing, it's pretty typical. Like, this is what people deal with a lot. Uh, whether your friends tell you they do or they don't, they, they do. And in my experience as a therapist, this was not that bad. Um, they were definitely uh, uh, not practicing well. Their arguments were becoming a little toxic. Um, but, yeah, I started it because... In a general sense, I think this is what people experience, spinning their wheels in these arguments, saying the same things over and over again, hoping that something will change. Well, and, and, and at certain points, you know, you, they, they sort of go through what you tell them, what you advise them to do in terms of, of the mm-hmm. kind of what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is so on. Yeah. When you say that, I yeah. say whatever. And, and it just sort of rings empty in a, in a moment like that where, where mm-hmm. the, the impasse is so serious. In this case, the, mm-hmm. the husband who's always gone uh, to work, and when he comes back, it's just he, he feels so 
severely judged by his wife who feels so neglected. And it's just, it's mm-hmm. like they're both right and they're both wrong. And uh, right. there's so little clarity in terms <laughs> of, well right, in terms of the, of the solution. You, after you kind of give us uh, kind of an excerpt from this really difficult scene, you say, my heart sank as I thought about the other couples in my practice who do well in the office but fail to thrive on their own. That's such an interesting idea that uh, within the rather comfortable confines of, of a therapist's office, uh, one thing might happen, but then you go out into the world, out into real life, and then so often things go badly. Talk a little more about that reality and, uh, and, and how pervasive that is. Uh, I mean, and that difficulty of trying to create something in your office that can be taken with the couple uh, out into their lives in the outer world. It's the reason I wrote the book, that couple and those experiences and that heart sinking moment when I thought to myself, man, we've been, I've been doing this over and over again. And before people get to the elevator banks in my building at the time in New York, you know, it was going off the rails. And so we would have these kumbaya moments where, look, some of those, some of those things are pretty effective. You know, the, 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 the conversation techniques of what I think I heard you say and what I got from that was when people get on board in the room with a referee or a therapist, uh, in this case, um, sometimes you feel like you're getting all this traction and you feel that traction and these couples start kind of warming up to each other and, and, and so things start feeling good and they leave and they're glad handing you and you feel like a great therapist and all that. And then the following week they come back and are like, yeah, it all went off the rails again. And so in that moment, I was like, I got to find something that actually works, that works in session, but also something that, you know, they can't stay tethered to me forever. And I would actually have people listen. I wish you could just come to our house. Can What's your retainer for the week? And, I, you know, that's really not a thing. So I went to um, a number of my colleagues and teachers, and all of them said the same thing. Welcome to couples therapy. And I said, surely this can't be the answer, right? But they were admitting to me that that's kind of the the experience that we've had at large as therapists is that you might get a a few couples that do well enough, but by and large, when push comes to shove and and feelings are, are, are hurt, we're triggered, we're going to go back to those old practices, those old ways of being. Hmm. And I, to a very uh, well-known, um, pretty famous marriage and family therapist, I said, you know, this can't be the answer. And she said to me, well, go figure something out on your own. Make something. <laughs> Do something different. And I said, well, of course, you know, being naive, I was, I said, okay, then I'm going to go do that. And I did. Hmm. You call it the glaring blind spot in the world of couples mm-hmm. therapy, the fact that there needs to be some kind of solution that is simple enough that it can be grasped by ordinary people and taken out into the world with them, and yet it has to be sophisticated enough that it can be applied to uh, the complex situations and problems that confront us all the time in our daily lives. And that's such an intriguing idea of a balance between simplicity and complexity uh, in order for a solution to be truly useful and applicable. Yeah. 
yeah, I had couples telling me like, no, these are great. These things you're doing in session, we do this well here when you're here. And look, when we're triggered, we go back. The amygdala fires off and that, that reptilian brain takes over. We go into our very protective sides of ourselves. And we are, you know, locked in that compartment of our brain that it can only see reasons for us to defend ourselves um, or reasons to run. And so we needed something that is uh, simple enough to be used in those moments when we are, when, when emotions run high. Hmm. But is also, again, um, sophisticated enough to, to, to meet the demands. And so in that moment, I was like, it's not going to be any one thing. We keep getting sold this bill of goods, especially in marriage and family therapy, that, oh, you know, you're a structural guy or you're a, you know, a cognitive behavioral person. Um, you're a narrativist. Uh, okay. We're going to wall ourselves off. We're going to keep ourselves away from some really important practices. And so this was a an effort for me to bring together, to be honest with you, there's not a lot new that, I, that, that I'm uncovering uh, necessarily in my book. Um, these practices have all been here. They've just never been put together in this way. Hmm. That's a very good way to put it. By the way, I'm reminded of something early in the book that, that I really, really loved. Um, uh, and it's this. For too far too long, we have assumed that we should innately understand how to love each other. Relationships have fallen into the basket of things that uh, we should just know how to do. But we are not born knowing how to make a relationship work any more than we are born uh, knowing how to file taxes or buy insurance. I thought that was so interesting because I suspect that one of the reasons why these kind of problems cause people such distress and bewilderment is because on some level probably a lot of us feel like we shouldn't have these problems or or there's something wrong with us if we have these problems because shouldn't we know how to do this and what you're saying in that paragraph is, is pretty simple no i mean uh yeah. maybe in some rare instances where uh, the stars sort of align but by and large, there's nothing strange about struggling in a relationship. Uh, and there's probably, in a sense, maybe something wrong with that relationship if there aren't these kind of struggles. It's true. When people come to me and they say, well, we never fight. I'm like, oh, boy, that's weird. And <laughs> it's, you, 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 you have to struggle. You, you are, if, you're, if you're not struggling from time to time, it means you're probably not talking about things. Um, you're, you're not confronting stuff that comes up. And so you have these, you know, a powder keg waiting for you. Um, people say to me all the time, you know, well, you know, should it be this hard? And I'll say, yeah, but just not for the reasons you're currently experiencing. Hmm. Right. It should be hard because it asks more of us. It asks us to be more mindful, to look at the part of ourselves, stop pointing fingers across the table and take some responsibility. We're speaking with Lair Torrent about his new book called The Practice of Love. Break old patterns, rebuild trust, and create a connection that lasts. Before we step into the main framework of the book, um, one of the things you say early on is that the divorce rate, uh, at least here in the United States, is holding rather stubbornly steady at right around 50%. 
Uh, you tell us the total number of divorces has decreased, but that's because the number of marriages has decreased. But by and large, the percentage of married people who ultimately get divorced is really staying about the same. I suspect that your book, however, is not just uh, a book to in in the hopes that that fewer people will get divorced or that you know that more no. marriages will survive. That your book is intended for more than that. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's I. When I was coming up, you'd hear when I was coming up through the ranks of, of, of marriage and family therapists, you'd hear people who were like they would you'd hear therapists say, I'm a pro-marriage therapist, meaning that I'm going to help keep you together at all costs. And my thought was, well, that sounds nuts. Um, if, if you are, I have people reaching back out to me uh, who, you know, didn't quote unquote make it as a couple, but found happiness in their lives apart. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help people find information. I'm trying to help people find happiness. If that's married and together, that's awesome. That's great. And these practices will help you do that. Um, But it's certainly, I I mentioned the marriage thing because if I'm going to write about relationships and marriage, people are always going to speak to that, that divorce rate that's been sort of lingering uh, above our heads for all of these years. And so I thought it would be pertinent to actually speak to it in perhaps a a new and different way. Hmm. So you have come up with a framework, uh, a set of five practices that ultimately lead uh, a couple or anybody in relationship uh, into a place of better mindfulness. And of course, <laughs> mindfulness is is a term I don't remember ever seeing or hearing or reading, uh, you know, 40 <laughs> yeah. years ago. <laughs> uh, no, but it is no. something that is talked about a bit more, and sometimes in different ways. How are you using sure. this term mindfulness in your book, The Practice of Love? It's really paying attention on purpose to your thoughts and feelings. Right? Um, mindfulness is, is, a, is a practice that's over 2,000 years old, um, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, a, a woman named um, uh, Langerer out of Harvard, she was writing um, books uh, uh, and, and papers on it um, way back in the day and talking about it. She said, you just have to um, turn off that autopilot and start paying attention, right? Mindfulness is actually simple. It's just made difficult because it's hard to remember. We're constantly looking externally. Um, at everyone and everything in our worlds, and rarely are we really just taking an inventory of how we are thinking and feeling. Mm. And so, what that does for us as a as a couple or as a, as a partner in a relationship, it gets me out of my knee jerk reactions. Because as I start to pay attention to my thoughts and feelings, I get a little see them. Right? I can ponder them for a moment. I can say, Do I want to enter this into the lexicon of our conversation? Do I want to do this thing? Do I want to say this thing this way? Hmm. Right? And so that's why the, the practices start with mindfulness, to begin to pay attention to oneself rather than to pay attention to what's going on across the table. Right. And, and one of the things you mentioned is that when we are in stressful situations or something kind of unexpected has crossed our paths or our, or our partner has... Uh, maybe done something that uh, evokes uh, anger or frustration, we tend to go into kind of automatic pilot. 
in terms of what our response is. And I suppose what you're telling us is that mindfulness, in a sense, disables the automatic pilot. And so your response is something that is more thoughtfully, mindfully made. And as human beings, we have to also have to remember that we are geared toward autopilot. Our brain is taking in 400 billion bits of information per second through all the various ports in our bodies, right? And so the brain has wants to uh, sort that information very, very quickly. And in order to do all that, it needs to be on autopilot. It doesn't want to sit and ponder any one thing for very long. Um, so autopilot is sort of a natural state, and we do it all the time. If you get in your car and you drive to work and you get to work and you barely remember the trip there, you were on autopilot. If you, if, you did a, if you took that trip mindfully, I've done this before, and you will begin to notice, like, I had no idea there was a cleaner on that corner. I had no idea that that restaurant was there. What's that place? You start to notice nuances. You start to notice things that you before didn't notice. Now, can you imagine if you brought that home? Ellen Langer, that Harvard uh, professor I talked about, she said, go home and pay attention to look at just notice four or five new things about your partner and watch what happens. Hmm. Right. It's a really interesting exercise to begin. To, you, you go, you've gone home to this person probably, uh, you know, who knows how many times it's, you're on autopilot. It's rote. What if you stopped, took, took a breath and began to look at that person and say, huh, I did you do something different with your hair? Oh, yes, I did. And suddenly that person seems, it feels noticed, right? You're paying attention. That's different. And mindfulness offers this opportunity. Hmm. At the outset, as you're explaining uh, these five practices that lead to greater mindfulness, you, you tell us that you came up with this framework of five practices through trial and error. I'm really interested to hear uh, what you mean by trial and error or or in what way or what was this process of trial and error by which you kind of came up with this framework. So, again, I've always wanted to have a really great relationship. I consider myself somewhat of a serial monogamous throughout the, my, my life. And I met my wife, Ashley, who, you know, I'm married to for 21 years, I've been with her for 21 years. And. And I saw that I had a great one, and I realized that if I wasn't going to, if I didn't start doing something different, that there's a very good chance, just based on the stats, <laughs> my stats as a, as a guy in a relationship, this would go eventually the way most relationships, or most of my relationships have gone, which were kind of failures, um, didn't work out. And I wanted to do something different. So I started practicing in my own relationship to find something that would de-escalate arguments, that would helped me show up in a, in a part of myself that was more compassionate, empathetic, understanding. I would begin to learn to love her in the way that she needs to be loved and cared about, not the way I need to be loved and cared about, and learn to take responsibility for myself. And so in my own life, I was practicing these five practices. But then, as I indicated early in the book, um, with that first couple, uh, I was using trial and error um, bringing these different practices, trying to build this, this, this way of working. And so one of the first things I did was I brought mindfulness practice, Eastern-based mindfulness, into a very Western clinical um, uh, setting and realized that, look, if we are going to practice any one communication device or any of these Western clinical modalities, 
you have to begin to pay attention to yourself on purpose. You have to be self-aware. And so I, I brought that in, and it was, it was sort of revelatory and new, as you said. It's like a while back it wasn't being, really being talked about that much. And um, so bringing that in, people were a little like, oh, okay, what is this? And some people knew, and some people thought, well, mindfulness, you mean meditation? No, I don't mean meditation. I mean paying attention to your thoughts and feelings. And so that would automatically de-escalate the couple to a large degree. And then I realized that, you know, people tell me all the time they have communication problems. You just communicated that you have communication problems to me just fine. You have a, a handle of the, 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 the English language. It wasn't communication problems per se. I recognize that there's these parts of us that show up in the trials, the, 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 the difficult times in our relationship. And if we could mindfully begin to notice what part of us was showing up, perhaps we could pull that part out and bring in a more compassionate more empathetic side of self to the table. And so this was the practice of, of, of finding um, these practices, these ways of working, bringing new things to my couples, and um, finally boiling it down to these five ways of, of, of working. You do tell us as you begin spelling them out that, that these are intended for, interestingly enough, a relatively healthy relationship that is undergoing maybe severe stresses, but that, for instance, these should not be applied to a relationship in which somebody is experiencing and or administering abuse. And in fact, I think mm-hmm. you go so far as to say that to do so would actually be very much counterproductive, perhaps even dangerous. Contra- contraindicated. Yeah. yeah. Can you just say a word about why this would not have any effectiveness and, in fact, would perhaps do more harm than good in a relationship where abuse is present? I'm going to answer that in, in kind of two little modules. First of all, uh, when, when you become a therapist and you're working with couples, one of the first things they say is if there is abuse in the relationship, you can't treat, you can't treat the couple because to do so would be um, greenlighting abuse and saying that this is okay. Uh, what you want to do is you want to send those, those partners out and, and get them individual therapy first um, to hopefully stop the abuse. But seeing a couple where there is active mental, emotional, physical, certainly physical abuse going on, it, 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 that's a term we use that's contraindicated. Um, but again, to then begin applying things like personal responsibility, it gets a little dicey. Um, because people start looking for their personal responsibility. I ask them to become more introspective. And so you have the person who uh, is, 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 is the victim of the abuse kind of looking for what part did I play in this? Well, you didn't. There's no excuse for this person abusing you mentally, emotionally, physically. Uh, That's not the, the, the practice of personal responsibility would, would not work for this person. Um, it would do more harm than good if that person is trying to find out well, why is this person speaking to me? This, what am I doing that, that 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 makes this person hit me this way? If you understand me, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness is so interesting because, in so many ways, it is an incredibly simple thing to do. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. It's probably mm-hmm. one of the simpler matters. Uh, I mean, in, in so many ways, it's, it's, it's about truly paying attention. 
uh, in a way mm-hmm. that we very seldom do. And yet, I really appreciate the fact that you, in your book, embrace the simplicity of mindfulness, of what it really means to be mindful, and yet do not sort of rush past it as though it is a simple matter that does not need to be talked about. In fact, we all need help in being more mindful. This might be a good point uh, for you to explain the structure of each of these chapters of the book in which you take us through uh, different facets like the what and the why and so on. Ah, yeah. So each chapter is broken down um, so that it's, it's, the, the practices are mindfulness, parts of self, the narrative or the story we tell, choosing, and then personal responsibility. Within each one of those, I break it down into the what, the why, the how, and exercises. So for each one, I will tell you what the practice is, in this particular case, mindfulness, what it is. So we have a a sound understanding and definition. We can't really do much unless we uh, are sort of learned in that that particular area. So each beginning is sort of a psychoed uh, scenario for everyone to, to, to come to a firm grasp and understanding. And this helps couples also begin to speak a similar language, right? And so we know what the, we know what the practice is. Uh, why? Why is mindfulness or narrative work or parts work so important? And this is where we might get into the meat of it. And this is for people who really like statistics and it's not, not bogged down with statistics, but I do offer the studies to sh- just to show you, like, this is, this is why the experts say these things are so serious and so important uh, for you to bring into your relationship. And so the, and then, um, so we have the what, the why, and then the how. And so in the how, it's like sort of practically, this is how I use it with couples. This is how I use it in my own life. There's lots of anecdotes in the book uh, about how I used it, how I came across it, and how I brought it into to, to my, my life and into my work. Um, and then the exercises is just, you know, uh, actual practices that people can use almost like a workbook um, with their partners and on their own. In the second portion of where you talk about the parts of us, uh, mm-hmm. you tell us we are not the single person we see staring back at us in the mirror. We are made up mm-hmm. of sub-personalities, parts mm-hmm. of self. And I suppose this is where it is so helpful for us to understand maybe that part of us that's incredibly uh, insecure <laughs> or that that part of us that is deeply jealous or resentful or that part of us that feels whatever, that, that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that it, it, it can really, uh, as confusing as it might be, there is a clarity to be gained when we understand these different facets uh, of ourselves and, and, and who we are. Is this something that people on their own are capable of doing, or is this something where you need the help of a therapist to kind of sort out just what are the different facets of my own personality? I don't necessarily think, like, I think you're right. We can get bogged down, and it can feel a little murky at first. But if you just think about it, there's a part of you, right? There's a part of you that shows up on the radio, right? This is your professional self. You deal with the people at work, the engineers and all. You deal with, 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 the, with the people, the places, the things at work. And that's an aspect of yourself. It's probably very different than the part of you that may go out with friends or go see your family. We all have these aspects of ourselves. Uh, but it's simply 
we we are not the simple we are not the single organisms we see staring back at us in the mirror. We are the many vestiges of ourselves. And if we begin to think about it, these these uh, people we become are, are are often very different. And what you know, uh, therapists smarter than me and people who've written more about it will tell you is um, that these 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 parts have their own beliefs, they have their own experiences, their own narratives. It's just weird for us to think about it. So what I do is I try to boil it down to make it really simple for people. We have parts of us that are charged with protecting us, right? And that, 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 that looks like, how do you fight? Are you, do you try to flee and get out? Um, or do you stand and fight? And so that, that'll tell you something about how, how you protect yourself. We all have an inner critic, a part of self that, that is critical of everyone and everything, including ourselves. Um, these two, the, the, the defender and the inner critic, they are charged with protecting these insecure parts. The way That's the way you put it, the insecure parts of us. These are these younger, wounded versions of ourselves. And we all have them. Uh, we come into the gates of life. There's probably going to be some wounding. Uh, when we have wounding that's significant, um, our psyche split, and we have these it's an overly used term, but the, the wounded child within all of us, and we, we all have them. And these protector parts of us, including the inner critic, are charged with keeping those parts safe. They say, in effect, this kid has had enough. Not gonna, we're not going to do this anymore. And so we're going to, as best we can, uh, create distance for this, for this younger wounded self so we don't incur any more damage. Mm. So this is how I get people thinking about it. Right. In the portion called the narrative, the, the third of the five practices, uh, you tell us that clients, often more than having problems, have what you call problem-saturated stories. People mm-hmm. essentially curate the stories of their lives uh, and then buy into them as fact. And I think this is so true. And, of course, your book helps us kind of untangle the way in which we have perhaps constructed a narrative uh, about ourselves or about our, our, our partner mm-hmm. or our, about our parents uh, mm-hmm. that helps us make sense of maybe something painful or frustrating. And uh, your, your book helps us to kind of untie that. I want to be sure we have time for the fourth of the five practices called choosing. And mm-hmm. this is so lovely. And I think especially on this Valentine's Day, uh, this is something that's going to kind of resonate with people. Uh, we once upon a time, of course, chose each other as mates, as life partners. But this is a different kind of choosing that you think is, uh, in some ways, every bit as important. Explain. So we think we choose on the big day uh, or on those big days when we decide that, okay, we're going to be in a relationship together. We're going to get engaged. Perhaps maybe we're going to move in. Maybe we're going to get married. Those are the bigger moments, right? But choosing happens every day, all the time in the little moments of life, or at least it should. When you send the message to your partner, I show up for you. I was thinking about you when you weren't here. It lets them know that they are loved, that they are safe, that they are enough and that they matter. And it's the stuff that those movies, poems, and songs are written about, those ones that, that kind of move us, right? Um, when we are, when it, it, it sounds funny, but it's, it's, it's in a cup of coffee made just the way she like it, likes it. It's a, it's a date night planned 
uh, at his favorite restaurant. It's that couple who wakes up in the middle of the night to, a, to, the, to the screaming child, and, and he says, no, 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 I got this one. I know you've been up the last three times, right? He says, I pick you. You matter. Your experience in this world is important, and I'm going to do everything I can to make it a better one. Can you imagine if we were choosing each other every day that way? Mm. I, w- I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> you write, when we do things for our partners that register as acts of kindness, consideration, thoughtfulness, uh, or benevolence, they feel chosen. And when we feel chosen, we feel loved. And the fifth of the five practices is uh, personal responsibility, making sure that we are thinking about some of these issues and challenges and concerns as we versus just me, the way this is making me me, me feel. I want to end in just uh, our last couple of minutes. I'm afraid that's all that remains to have you talk about something that uh, leapt out at me because I'm a Star Trek fan. And you said at yeah. one point in the book, couples therapy can sometimes feel a lot like playing Star Trek chess, which for those who don't yeah. know Star Trek is a fancy chess played on three different chess boards, one above the other, so kind of a three-dimensional chess. In what way do you think of the work you do as a couples therapist as playing uh, three-dimensional chess? So you have three people in the room, the therapist included, myself, and you count, and your energy, their energy. So you have you know, two people and yourself. And all of it's in the room and everyone brings their stuff. And as a therapist, you have to be conscious of this person, what, that, that, the, the, uh, the first partner's stuff, what they bring to the table, all of their stuff, what they're, what they're talking about right now, and their history and their wounding, their parts, right? The aspects of them that are here. Uh, what's going on between the couple? And then this other partner over here, all of their stuff, all of their wounding, all of their uh, wounded children and protector parts. Okay, and the thing that they're talking about. And then how are the therapists reacting to this? Um, are you, do, do you find some of your own stuff happening between this couple and it's freaking you out? Uh, do you not like that person? Or do, does that person put you off a little bit for some reason? If we're honest, we're human beings first. We're not therapists first. We're human beings. And we have reactions to people all the time. And so we need to take all of that in and understand like where our foibles are too. As I said, you're not the fully analyzed therapist, and you need to recognize that. that humble place, and so you recognize that your stuff's there too. Hmm. And so these are the, essentially the three tiers. And I just want to sort of unpack what that experience is like. And uh, most, a lot, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of therapists will report to other therapists they don't really love doing couples work because it's hard. It's hard to hold space, as it were, for all of that. Um, and to be thinking on those multiple levels. But it's something that's, for me, it was always challenging in a really amazing way. And when I was at my internship, I told them all that I loved couples work. And they were like, well, we'll send you all the couples. And they did. So I <laughs> got my hours fast. Wow. Well, uh, you have taken all of your experience and expertise and uh, your own life experience uh, and, and, and put it all together so beautifully in this wonderful book, which again is titled, the Practice of Love, Break Old Patterns, Rebuild Trust, and Create a Connection That Lasts, published by Roman and Littlefield and the author, Lair Torrent. Lair Torrent, thank you so much for this book and for this opportunity to speak with you about it. Best wishes. 
Thanks for having me.